We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Hydration Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on better hydration for people, plants, animals, and soil. As the leading authority on hydration, the Hydration Foundation is dedicated to solving our health on this planet through creating better systems and conversations when it comes to water and how it moves through our bodies, irrigation, and food systems. You can learn more about the Hydration Foundation by navigating to www.hydrationfoundation.org. You can donate to Hydration Foundation's program to restore soil through water. With $33, we can rehydrate and decontaminate one acre of farmland with a better way for irrigation. Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Today's episode is about the end of life and how to prepare for death gracefully with BJ Miller, a hospice and palliative medicine physician and educator. He currently sees patients and families through Metal Health, a company he co-founded with the aim to provide personalized holistic consolations for any patient or caregiver who needs help navigating some of the emotional and practical issues that come with serious illness and disability. BJ's given hundreds of talks, his 2015 TED Talk, Not Whether But How, was viewed over 11 million times. He's been on Oprah Winfrey, PBS, The New York Times, and his book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, was co-authored with Shoshana Berger and published in 2019. I recently read it, and it's an incredible book with so much wisdom and information about the end of life. So thank you so much, BJ, for joining the show. Thank you, Yasmin. It's a pleasure to be here with you. (laughs) So BJ... I'm so excited to talk to you because I think this topic and this subject is something that so much of our, at least Western culture, is not really paying attention to. Um, And I think it's, you know, very few people really talk about the end of life and death. It's something that we kind of hide today in culture. So I know that you've you've dedicated your life to this uh, work. So since you've been a palliative and hospice physician, what does it mean in your terms and in your perspective to die well? Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And it's a, it's a great phrase. I mean, um, dying well can mean two different things, right? Like sort of doing a good job of it you know, essentially <laughs> like like the tasks involved etc um but the bigger way that at least i mean it uh is you know that when we die we can be well we can be whole uh you know in other words it sort of pushes back on as you're saying but the sort of western model of death is sort of you know is the is the climax of illness or trauma or something going wrong you know, and by definition, in that lens, by definition, when you're dying, you are unwell. You know, you are. In, you know, but that 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 construct doesn't really work very well, and doesn't account for the totality that is dying. And because dying is a natural event and an inevitability, and nothing of a failing, it's just us doing our thing as natural beings. Uh, it is very possible to be well, to be whole as you uh, head off the planet and that's how i mean it and um so on that note um so one is just doing what we just started to do is you know kind of framing this for yourself Uh, death is a a universal experience and that every living creature does it 
has always done it, probably always will do it. Uh, so getting that, just that alone helps me and many others just get in the ballpark here. Uh, so that's a, a great place to start is if you can, if you can find a way to rope death into your view of life, into your view of reality, well, then you're not going to be at odds with your nature and you're not going to be at odds with your reality and you're not going to be at odds with the fact that you die. You may not like it. You may not want to do it. You can kick and scream, whatever you want to do. It's filled with all sorts of emotion and sorrow. But you know, so- sorrow isn't the enemy. I mean, uh, all emotions are welcome. So one is to start by framing the subject in a way that you can feel um, that death is approachable and part of your life, not this thing that robs you of life. Uh, that that's key. Uh, and whatever words work for you, whatever framing works for you, find some way to do that. And then once you're in there, uh, well then that automatically takes care of some of the shame or the sense of failure. If you follow the arc of the English language and the constructs we use around here, especially in the medical world, uh, we say, you know, people succumb to death. They lost their battle, you know, Mm -hmm. implying again, that death is optional and if you do it, well, you've failed at something. You know, something went wrong. You went wrong. Um, and again, if you buy into that, well, then you're going to have to hate yourself on top of having to die. So, uh, so let me stop there as a mouthful. But that, that, I mean, that's a way in where there's a lot more to say. But am I making some sense? Does that register yeah. with you, Yasmin? Yeah, absolutely, BJ. I mean, I think, you know, the words die well, and I didn't even notice it, you know, that the, the words that we're using when it comes to death, you know, dying well, what you're essentially saying is it's it's a part of life and living well is dying well. Like it's just a natural process. And, and it is interesting because I think I'm also, you know, trained maybe culturally to think of death as something negative, right? Like it's like we've, you know, come to the end of our life and uh, we can no longer continue. Because I, and I think also maybe part of culture, uh, it's, it feels like it's so linear and there's a kind of assembly line feature to life. And so, you know, I guess culturally we haven't really, um, been indoctrinated to believe that there is an end, right? Like there's always more, there's always more. You can always be more, right? There's never enough. We're in this like consumption and accumulation culture. So, you know, I think that doesn't really fit well with death. Yeah. So I love- right on. (laughs) Yeah. And by the way, you know, I I don't spend a lot of time thinking about death. Um, You know, I've been in many ways very fortunate, of course, have had grandparents that passed and grew up Iraqi American. And so at a very young age, I I heard about death kind of secondhand through a lot of family and friends who died in the Gulf War. Um, You know, so I've kind of seen it tangentially and learned about death, maybe even before I learned about life. Um, So, but I I think, you know, as an American, I, I, again, you know, I don't really talk about these subjects with people unless, you know, they've lost a parent or they lost a sibling. Um, but it just doesn't come up in in kind of mainstream culture, the idea that one day we will all die. So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, uh, why do you think so many people find it so difficult to talk about death? And also, we haven't talked about this yet, but disability and, um, you know, for the folks who are listening who don't know about BJ's story, uh, we'll go into that later. But yeah, why do, why do people find it so difficult to talk about these subjects? 
Well, you know, I think we've touched on a little bit of the, of, of, of the problem to the degree that's a problem, which is, you know, a culturally, the, the, the language we use that we pass on toward, to each other, you know, a lot frames our experience. Much flows from the words we choose rather than the other direction. Um, so part of it is our own framing, our own construct in this, in the West, there has been this sort of America as a, as a country per se, in the U S of a, you know, in particular was founded on this sort of seeking, this searching, this go over there, that the truth is over there, that there's this, that, that life is that a good American life is that you, you have these aspirations that you seek this thing that's in front of you, this future state where you can. You know, which means in a, in a way, in a way it means like you're, you're not present mm. you know, almost in, in inherently. You're not, you're not taking in what nature is giving you. You are saying, what do you want nature to be? Mm. It's manifest destiny. And it is a compelling, I buy into the myth of the West myself in all sorts of ways. I do strive. I do seek. I do think that's part of human nature. Uh, on some level, but and, and we've just sort of taken it to an extreme here. Um, so that seeking, that searching, that 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 idea that there's something you're not whole as you are, but you can be if you get over there, you know. So that is a big, big piece of the puzzle. And uh, you watch that play out in our films, our books, our music. Um, so it's not your fault. I mean, we just kind of. Re- reify these ideals and and and, and you know um, the u.s is uh, you know is one of the things that's fascinating about this place is it was founded on an idea you know america is an idea it's not and so ideas are not necessarily the same thing as reality they're what you, what you might want reality to be like the pursuit of happiness a more perfect union uh the idea that we are all created equal an, an idea that we are created equal, that we as humans have equal value. That that's an idea. I don't know if you look around nature, is there proof of that, all that we're all created equal? Mm, I don't know. The closest thing that maybe that would be proof of that is that we all bo- we're all born and we all die. Therefore, <laughs> in the macro that by that definition, we are all equal. But boy, <laughs> in between those two poles, life does not play out equally. Uh, in so many ways. So anyway, so constructs, 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 language, the way we pass these things on culturally. And of course, that just, so that's a big piece of it. But that just, unfortunately, kind of is in collusion with our hormonal lives, our sort of biology, too. And it's, it's, it's important to note, lest we get down on ourselves for being in denial or something like that, that, you know, we are wired reflexively to fight or flight you know that when there's some threat to our existence we are wired we get a huge hormonal surge of adrenaline and other things that we either put up our dukes or we (laughs) we sprint in the other direction um so that's an that's a reflex that's an impulse that's not your fault you're born with that uh so between our our nature and our nurture between our biology and the sort of cultural social attunement that we've chosen to to pursue as a people they all conspire to keep us a little bit at odds with this idea of death so uh so no shame in it i think i'm just happy for conversations like uh, like ours today like podcasts like yours where you know, more and more people are talking about this, are trying to make peace with their full, their real nature. And this is a big piece of that. 
So it's a process. Let's say that. Right. No, no, no shame in not somehow mastering this. I don't know anyone who. I'm not sure what mastering death looks like. I don't know if that's even possible. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't know. But by willing to open yourself to it, willing to lean into things that you don't know, willingness to answer, ask questions that don't necessarily have answers, a willingness to be curious, a willingness to see life inside but also outside and beyond yourself, your ego, uh, these are all beautiful sort of human you know, pursuits of their own that can flow and can include – uh, sort of a rumination or a meditation on death. So, anyway, that, that does that make sense? I mean, yeah. Does that let you off the hook a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I, I think of course a lot of us, you know, feel shame and guilt and blame around the death cycle, right? Especially when it comes to close friends and family. So, I think, you know, the language that we use, like you said, and the construct that exists, makes it difficult for us because, like, by default, you know, we kind of are where we are you know, culturally. So I love, you know, that you and others are, you know, starting to have these conversations and, you know, writing books about it. And I think, you know, again, that's why this is so important. And I especially think it's important since, you know, the pandemic started and there's been so much death, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit. And I actually think this is a good segue to talk about your book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, because you know, I, I started reading it and um, I just was you know, kind of shocked at how little I knew <laughs> about what goes into the end of life, like all the documents and, you know, the paperwork and conversations that you need to have, not just about, you know, property, but also the emotional conversations. I mean, in many ways I was kind of, um, you know, overwhelmed with what happened, what happens at that stage, but I also felt very, uh, safe you know, and hmm. almost less scared about it because I felt like at least I understood what I didn't want to look at. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, not knowing what's happening with your financial uh, situation and then getting an understanding of it. Even if you don't like it, for example, at least, you know, right. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I just, I mean, I, I think this is just an interesting conversation, I think for all families to have. And I think everyone should read your book because it's, powerful. And I think it also alleviates some of the pressure that happens at the end of, of life when we don't do all this preparation. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to maybe highlight some of the most important things that you have found, uh, people need at the end of life. Um, I know yeah. that you have a very lengthy book, but maybe you could summarize it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know what, I was talking to someone recently about the book and the poor woman was she was trying to read the thing cover to cover like you'd read a novel and she was just getting <laughs> flogged <laughs> so um i'd point any reader you know it'd be uh, to really read the introduction to the book carefully and also you might jump to the end kind of in a funny ironic twist of starting with the end starting with death which is much what the book does the, the last the conclusion i think is all of a page or two but the intro and the conclusion will bookend the book itself for you, but also kind of set the table. The book is is really a reference guide, and you can look in the table of contents. And you know it's useful to use it as a, a as a resource, so you can pick out an issue that's uh, that's you're thinking about or that's affecting you or your family, and just go there. 
you know, each little chunk is meant to be more or less stand on its own. So uh, you don't have to take all this in in one fell swoop. This is a lifetime of work. But we did want to lay out sort of the practical sort of bits of the, the issues that you will face when approaching the end of your life, at least in our culture, at least in our society here in the West, um, and the things that you can do about it and where you got to learn how to let go of control or the need for control um, and just sort of lean into the mystery of it all. So and the reason why Shoshana and I wrote this book was uh, my own work as a hospice and patent medicine doc. I just see you see so many people uh, suffering at the end of life, whether they're the patient dying themselves or a family member or friend. There's just so much pain around it. And much of that pain, not all, but much of that pain is just unnecessary. It's from a lack of, inf- of good information or it's from a lack of a safe place to talk about this because it's considered sort of impolite or superstition would tell you to you can't talk about death because then like somehow you're going to make it happen if you talk about it. So I, I meet so many people who really want to talk about it and think about it, but they just don't know what words to choose or where it's safe to do so in polite company. So, so all that unnecessary heartache and pain that, that we're trying to kind of alleviate that and then make space for all the pain that you can't do anything about, but sit with. And, uh, in this way, uh, a, a book like ours and sort of just any sort of practice that prepares you for the end of your life has a way, uh, of making hard things less hard and making meaningful things a little bit more meaningful. It's not, we're not asking you, anybody reader to love death or somehow get into it, or you don't even have to make peace with it. I would just love if everyone had some sort of relationship to it because so much wisdom and good stuff flows from that relationship, love, kindness, forgiveness, mutualism, interdependence, uh, humility, curiosity, these all flow pretty naturally from pondering death and the life uh, that it's involved with. So, um, and and then you know, I, I think that's also worth. It's also worth mentioning that a book like this is important. Uh, um, you know, you could say, "Hey, yes, mean right. We all we all die. We've been dying forever. It's in our nature. So why the hell do we need a book like this to tell us this how to do this thing that our body's just going to do?" Um, well, like I mentioned. It's because we've constructed a lot of uh, fantastic ways to struggle where we don't have to. So, and especially is it's it's particularly poignant in our healthcare system, in our medical system, um, because uh, because their death is a failure, and and healthcare is not an intuitive system, at least here in the U.S. And uh, navigating it can can cause a lot of harm in of itself. So, because we have all these convoluted structures or lack of structure around death, you do really need some sort of guidebook um, because it's not just a natural process anymore. Humans have intervened in some pretty wacky ways that make it make what could be a native experience uh, a foreign one. So anyway, that's a long-winded preamble to why <laughs> we thought a book like this was important in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, go ahead, BJ. Well, no, I was going to sort of finally take your question of like what <laughs> tidbits to pe- pull out of there that I think are really extra important. But no, we can, but pl- please go on. You were going to say something else. 
Oh yeah, no, I'd love to hear your answer to that. I also just wanted to highlight one of the um, kind of anecdotes that I remember from the book, which is how a woman had put together, you know, towards the end of her life, uh, a box of documents, like all of her passwords and kind of everything that her kids would need. Um, and I think the kids didn't really acknowledge what it was and the importance of it. And then after she passed, they said, wow, that was the best gift that my you know, mom could have given me this, you know, box of everything that I needed in order to deal with her death. And it's so interesting. I never even thought about it that way. Um, so yeah, I just, I thought that that story was, was really powerful, but if you wanted to talk about some themes, I have so many questions for you, so <laughs> we can also move on. <laughs> well, yeah, I will say, I mean, I'm just picking up. So the book does follow. There's practical issues. There's paperwork stuff. There's preparing to how to close down accounts and all the things that can chip away at the experience uh, for you or the people who are left behind to grieve you. Um, and that kind of gets at another reason to do your advanced directive, to do your estate planning. Uh, is it can be tedious and you don't want to reduce something profound like death to, to paperwork. But of course, there's a paperwork component to it. We just got to be real. But a lot of that paperwork is there to protect you. So an advanced directive is really important to protect your wishes for care if you can't speak for yourself. So you know you can't predict when you're going to have an accident or somehow find yourself unconscious in an ICU that then that that's not the time to prepare yourself or to communicate your wishes to loved ones or what's important to you and so people are left to guess very consequential medical decisions on your behalf with no guidance um and the medical system now there's too much that's just possible we can we can prop a body up on machines practically indefinitely i mean it's ghoulish but it's true and so if you, if your view on life is that it's essentially a, a pulse and that's his life to you. Well, then the medical system, then you can go with its defaults. It'll just keep putting you on more and more machines, more and more meds to prop up that pulse. Whether you're conscious or able to move or whatever else, that's the bottom line of life in a medical system. So if you feel differently, you know, then you've got you've to advocate for yourself. You've got to say at some point, no thanks to that next medical treatment. Um, but the defaults in our system would be to just keep doing more, doing more. And you need to say no thanks. And you need to deputize people in your life, healthcare proxies, to say no thanks on your behalf. So that's the kind of thing that goes into an advanced directive. So, yeah, it's, it's tedious paperwork, but it, it represents some profound decisions and ways to avoid profound uh, heartache. Right. Um, right. So, so there's that kind of piece. That's where the book starts, is those are practical tidbits. Um, but also then there's the relationship stuff, you know, so once you kind of come to terms with on some level that time is precious, that you're not here forever, that makes you sort of, you need to take your time seriously, um, one way or another. And that may mean sort of letting go of aspirations. Like, Hey, if I'm going to die anyway, you know, now that I've kind of dared to ponder it and Hey, if it doesn't matter what I do or, you know, if what do I achieve in life, I'm going to die anyway. Well, heck. Maybe I'll go hang out with my friends instead of that 15th hour at work or you know, whatever it is. You can make, it can allow you to take life more seriously or in a way to let it go uh, and to get, let yourself off the hook. Those are both fine responses, but they only come from once you've dared to have some sort of relationship to the idea that you're not going to be here forever. And once you're in there, then it's sort of cleaning out what we say, like clean out your emotional attic. 
tend to your relationships. Think about what you're leaving behind, your legacy, not just the stuff, but the feelings, the emotions, the wisdom. So that person you're referencing in your question about who left the box behind, if I remember the story correctly, this is my colleague in palliative care named Ira Bayok. He actually wrote a book called Dying Well. Um, I'm much, much of my thinking is in his lineage. Um, and his mom left behind this box of, that included like recipes and things and all sorts of beautiful stuff. And what a gift it was to her family. And this is one of the ways that we can live, outlive our bodily lives. And, you know, so, uh, so legacy, emotional residue, uh, thinking about the world that is going to keep going without you in it and ways you might touch that world, even from the grave. All that's possible. It just needs a little, little, uh, some action on your part, some forethought. Mm. So anyway, there's just some sort of greatest hits uh, of things to kind of that you'll find in the book, but it's not just that stuff. Emotional coping, existential sort of framing. How do you find meaning in your life? How do you let go of the need for meaning if you can't find it? Uh, how to cope in general? So anyway, those are some highlights from the content of the book for you. Yeah. It's... Um, oh, oh, sorry, Jasmine. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go <laughs> sorry. Ahead. <laughs> what I'm going to say. One of the more compelling reasons. I may have already said this, but to back to your point about the the mother who left this box for her kids. Um, advanced care planning, you know, that kind of thing. Preparing yourself for, for your own death, even if you don't really much care. Like, hey, if you're so limber, you can move with the wind, no matter what. If it takes you in an ICU, fine. If it takes you to, you know, dead in the woods, fine. If you're sort of that open. Well, you may not be so moved to prepare for your own death, but for your family or friends, it is one of the kindest things you can do is to leave your affairs in order, quote unquote, so you don't leave a big old mess for your loved ones after you're gone. Right. Um, and that is one of the more compelling reasons to actually do this work. Right, exactly. I mean, I think that's what's so powerful about the book is it's not just for your own death, but it's for your family and friends to know how to deal with what you want at the end of life. And I love that you're never too young to start planning because of course, like anything can happen at any time. Right. So I think, you know, the, even the idea of, of leaving a legacy behind, you know, I, I feel like that's something I can do immediately or start thinking about immediately. Um, and even just the advanced directive, right. Like, and that obviously changes as the older I get and, you know, yeah, right on. Yes. And you should, you should plan to change your advanced directive over time. Like what you're willing to live with, what treatments are available, what diagnoses you might acquire along the way, you know, you get to change your mind a zillion times. Uh, that's, that's welcome in this work. It's not, some people are afraid to do an advanced directive because they feel like they're putting their wishes in stone and they can't change it. Not, not, not at all. You can rip up your advanced directive a zillion times and write a new one. So Yes. Right. Yeah. And I love uh, the story about how a, a grandfather uh, wanted to, I think he like didn't want to be resuscitated or he just wanted to kind of go if he, if he, you know, had that opportunity. Um, and then his wife, uh, someone's grandmother said, no, but I want to keep him alive as long as possible. Cause it'll break my heart if he goes, you know, so it's interesting, like the, the conversation that needs to be had. Sometimes we don't you know, decide to do what's best for us, but you know, what is best for our f friends and family. So yeah, right on. so many great conversation starters, even from that book. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
BJ, I wanted to talk about, um, so one of the books I read many years ago, which really changed my life was, uh, the top five regrets of the dying. I think it was also in a New York times article, uh, a couple of the, the highlights from that book. Uh, and this woman was a palliative care nurse. So she talked about some of the biggest regrets that she saw from family members, uh, as their loved ones approached death. And I'm wondering if you have maybe any anecdotes or any data to share as you have worked with people at the end of life, like what are some things that you're seeing as some of the biggest regrets from family and friends? Well, I think, I think they're, they're not surprising. I think they're more along the lines like, you know, why didn't I spend more time with people I cared about, you know, versus trying to achieve that staying later in the office yet again. And, you know, uh, marginalizing uh, people in your life on behalf of some work accomplishment. I mean, work can be a beautiful thing. That's I don't mean to demonize work, but it, it better if you're going to devote you know your life to it. You better make sure that it means a lot to you. That's more your homework. Uh, and so that kind of gets at the regrets that people might face is that they didn't it didn't really follow their heart. You know, follow their heart. Follow your bliss. I mean, that can feel light. Um, or sort of, you know, even selfish and sometimes the way it's put around here anyway, but no, 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 it's more meant to like, whatever you do, if it's just collecting Coke cans, you know, just care about it, get into it, engage it, love it, whatever it is. So I don't see a lot of people necessarily regretting, um, regretting more or less accomplishment per se. It's more, did they follow their, did they invest their whole being into something? Did they let themselves care about something and pursue that that care? Did they choose love or did they work from fear? Um, those those get at sort of the 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 the, the admixture of of regrets that you see uh, at deathbed moments often. But you know it's interesting too. I must say, uh, oftentimes one of the things that can happen towards the end of life, especially with enough support, is you kind of come to see, you can come to see or realize that just everything is, that it just is, you know, like I, I struggle with regret myself a lot. I spend a lot of time regretting things for whatever reason. I just get stuck in there. And um, it's very helpful for me to realize that, yeah, regret is just something that humans do. And for me to realize that no matter what I do, I'm, go, I'm going to find something to regret about it. And so in a way, I let myself off the hook. I may still feel regrets, but the the notion of regret has lost its charge. Same thing goes with fear. And, and fear are it's related. A fear is, regret is something, I, I, I think of it as like a, as a fear of the past in a way. So similarly, like fear, like, you know, it, it's not that you extinguish your fear. It's that you come to a place where you realize that you're, you know, that you're not just afraid that fear can lose its terror in a way. It can, you can defang it by having a relationship to it, by just accepting it for what it is and not being ruled by it. So, so similarly at the end of life, oftentimes at a deathbed it is a very peaceful place, no matter what kind of life they've had, because by virtue of their body showing them these truths, and their own mind showing them these truths and living them, not in the abstract, but actually playing these things out we're talking about here from a distance. You know, I don't see a lot of people plagued by anything at the end of life. Um, it's more those of us who have to keep going and are stuck with our neurotic minds and our 
projections projections of terror um that's it's trickier for family members um but i don't know if that's reassuring or what but it's uh, it's been true enough in my experience regret is more something that we neurotic living people do <laughs> well, yeah that <laughs> makes a lot of sense <laughs> yeah um I wanted to uh, just quickly talk about your journey and what happened to you to lead you to this path. I mean, it's very obvious that you're very contemplative and reflective and very self-aware with the way that you see the world and the way that you talk about, you know, not just death, but also about life. Um, and I, you know, I also, I hesitated asking this question because, um, and this is not similar, but I'm just giving an example, but I oftentimes you know, for example, as an Iraqi American, I, I want to be acknowledged for that story, but I also don't want to be objectified for it. Um, so I also don't want to objectify you based on what happened to you to kind of lead you on this path. Cause I think you're, there's so much more of you <laughs> than, mm. than just that experience. Um, but I think maybe it's important to just share what happened uh, for our audience, and if you feel comfortable, you know what it meant to go through that, and how it led you to the place that you are in now. Oh, yeah, sure. I, no, and I appreciate that setup too, Yasmin. I, I, I really, I get what you mean, um, and at the same time, I'm happy enough to share this this part of my experience. Um, it reminds me, I was. Uh, Speaking of regrets, I have all sorts of regrets, as I mentioned. One of them was I was on Fresh Air, you know, the Terry Gross NPR show. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know it. And <laughs> she asked me, she asked me, you know, did I mind being asked about my injuries? And I gave her a polite answer, which is true enough, which I just said, which is, yeah, no, I don't mind. Hey, look, I get it. I mean, take one look at my body. You can tell something's gone on. I would have been curious too. You know, it's okay. It's fine. And I, I can recount it in my sleep. Doesn't really take anything away from me these days, but a fuller answer is, and it gets at I think maybe what you're pointing at too. That's mean in your own life is that un unfortunately that story can just become the story, yeah. and you become flattened by it, and that's all that people see, and uh, and it becomes too, too monolithic too. Like my the story of my accident, which I'll, which I'll get to <laughs> in a second here. It was. It's my story, but it's a it's a zillion stories, and it's many people's stories, and it has a lot to do with the friendships that came from it, and the friends who helped me survive. And so it keeps getting treated as a story when it's when it's you know thousands of stories. Actually, uh, is another piece of why a fuller answer to that 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 kind that polite question. Uh, so anyway, with all of that preamble, um, so the, the, the broad strokes, the, the gist is when I was a sophomore in college, November, just late, just after Thanksgiving holiday here, um, I, uh, was hanging out with some of my very dear friends and we were just, I had a night, we're just hanging out, uh, and we were walking to get a sandwich late at night at the 24 hour market. And, uh, it, uh, this is at Princeton and that's where we're students. And the, there's a commuter train that runs right, uh, on campus it used to it. The station has since moved, but the train cars were just sort of sitting right there on the edge of campus parked. Just, you know, not, we didn't think we were doing anything kind of crazy. We just decided to climb the ladder, just hop on top of this parked train. Like, 
like you would climb a tree was the impulse. We, again, it wasn't moving. We didn't, it was not operating. We didn't think there was much to it. Um, but when I uh, scurried up the ladder, when I stood up, I had a metal watch on my left wrist. And uh, this was a commuter train powered by wires overhead. And when I stood up, I was close enough to that power source and the electricity arc to the watch. And that was that big, big explosion. So I got electrical burns, pretty profound, and ended up losing my left arm below the elbow and both legs below the knees um, and coming pretty close to the end of my own life. Uh, for, was in a burning it for several months, uh, touch and go for, for maybe uh, six weeks of that. Um, so that, that's the broad strokes of sort of that. The, the injury itself, how I got uh, into these particular shoes and, and that has led me into medicine and all sorts of other things. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so emotional for me to hear that story. And it's so interesting that you can say it without emotion because you've probably spent a lot of time mm. dealing, you know, with, with that narrative. Um, and I think, you know, that's important because I think you had mentioned before, um, maybe in another conversation that as a physician, you work with other people who are disabled and that also gives them hope that there's so much more that you can do in your life. Um, even if you face some disability. So I just think that was the, the image of that is so powerful in my mind that you have decided to kind of build, you know, more in one lifetime than most people do in 10. <laughs> so just thought that was really profound. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And thank you also for the, you know, your reflections on my question. Um, I really mm. appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, BJ, how has the pandemic shifted people's perspective when it comes to death? I mean, this has been like an unprecedented time in this last year or so. I mean, I personally know a lot of people who uh, maybe not you know, first degree, but second degree who passed away from, uh, COVID-19 and it's just been horrible across the world. Right. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, you know, and it's happened so fast. And I think a lot of people haven't even been able to have proper burials and proper funerals. Um, you know, how has this shifted your mindset or how, how do you actually think that this situation has shifted people's perspective when it comes to death? Right on. Well, and it's still going, right? I mean, we're right. still on, we're not, we're not done yet with this thing. Right. Um, or it's not done with us. Um, so I, I, as you say, it's, it's, the dust hasn't really settled. So there's, there hasn't been, uh, this thing called closure resolution. You know, there, uh, there's just still so much pain lingering in the air acutely and a backlog of grief over the past year. And I think most of us don't even know how we feel about it. We don't even know all that. We're not even quite clear probably on all that we have lost. Um, so that that's obviously hard and that's obviously sad. Um, but I, I guess I want to draw attention to where, where I have a lot of hope. Um, you know, so as a as a hospice and palliative medicine physician, of course, I see a lot of people who are pretty darn sick and coming towards the end of their life, whether from old age or from illness or whatever else. And I get to meet a lot of people who have gotten a life limiting or life threatening diagnosis. You know, and you watch these folks go through what we call an existential crisis. 
which essentially is a crisis of meaning, you know, questions of why, why me, why now, what did I do to deserve this? What's going to happen? You know, this sort of this moment where you find yourself in shoes that you never would want to be in. Um, so uh, an existential crisis, uh, is, is tricky, but I also, I, I, it's one of those, it, it can be a profoundly useful event. Um, I had mine, I've had many, one of them was my own accident that I shared with you a moment ago. Certainly was an existential crisis for me. Like, who am I now? Why, why me? Who am I? What do I have? Um, how do I make sense of this? What do I do now? What do I do with this? Um, so those are big, big questions and they're so fruitful. That's my point here. Painful. Yeah, but fruitful. Um, because if you let it, an existential crisis will shake you down. It will, it will discombobulate you. It will upend the things you thought you knew, uh, the things you thought you could take for granted. All of a sudden you can't. And it has a way of stripping you of all the sort of applique of life, the, the created self, the, the made up self, the thing that the, the from act, the things that we acquire or achieve, like we've referenced now a couple of times, you know, that, 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 that built self that can all go away in an instant. Um, and that sucks. Um, but it also has a way then of telling, showing you what's underneath all that stuff. Um, uh, what's underneath all your protections and all your, uh, you know, glitter and all your gloss. Uh, and it's earthy as hell, right? It gets down to like, you know, this nub of an individual, of a person underneath our circumstance. Who are we when we're yanked out of our circumstance? Um, those are, I'd always wondered, you know, as a young person, kind of just trying to make my way in the world, I always wondered who the hell I was and who was I if I didn't have my parents or if I didn't have feet or whatever, if I couldn't rely on a future. Um, and there's only one real way to answer those questions, which is to have yourself a massive existential crisis. <laughs> you can't, you can only get so far with recreational thoughts, you know, like these are, you know, you can imagine as an undergraduate class study, studying meaning making, you know, <laughs> and you can have ideas about it and how you might respond to this or that. But until you're actually in those shoes, you don't know. And this is how, you know, so, um, and then with enough support and enough time, and if you get to get to hang out on the planet a little while longer, in an existential crisis, you move. You can move through with some grief. Very important piece of the puzzle. We should talk about that. Um, but you can move through it. And on the far side of an existential crisis, you can pop out with a much deeper sense of who you are, who you aren't, clarity around your difference between the things you want and the things you need, a much clearer demarcation of the boundaries between yourself and others. Uh, when I say boundaries, I mean the porosity of those boundaries of how how much we need each other and how much we're def how much we rely on each other to define ourselves. So you, you know that's when you pop out the backside, you get to you have a line of sight on all those things. You know, like for me too, in my existential crisis, I had a sense of who showed up. I, got, I felt like I got to see attend my own funeral. Like mm. who came, who came, who showed up. Now I got that window. Those are profound insight, right? You get, you, you just can't get to these things otherwise. Um, 
So my hope here is that the pandemic represents, which it does, a massive existential crisis. And it's gonna. And if we let let it rip us up, let the China break. Well, in time, we the dust will settle, and we'll see who we were and are underneath all this stuff. And then we can get busy recreating these things that we had taken for granted to be more responsive, be more faithful to the experience of being a human being, etc. So there really is, and I don't mean this in a cheap political way, but the, there is an opportunity to learn a ton and to do differently going forward. If we let ourselves, if we let ourselves drop the charade, if we let ourselves be discombobulated enough and my fear is that the pandemic will end and we'll all encourage ourselves and each other to get back to normal. We're going to hear that phrase again and again, <laughs> turn to normal. Like that phrase sucks. It terrifies me. Like, so we're going to go through all this pain and right at the end, shortchange the lessons and the glory that can come from it. Like I'm talking about that, that would be right. what, what a, what a way, what a waste of a good pandemic. Um, so that, that's my hope. We're, it, we'll, we'll see. But talking about it will help. Grieving it will help because grief will tell will get you in touch with how you feel about all this. Will get you in touch with what you're actually losing and what you actually still have have access to. And that sort of transition, that sort of metabolic transition process, is essential piece of this. If we shortchange our grief, I guarantee you, we're not going to get to the lessons that are awaiting us. Um, that's part of the deal. That's part of how we're going to get there. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, and in our culture, we kind of talk about grief as something that we don't necessarily want to deal with. There's a lot of numbing out in our culture, whether it's through, you know, alcohol, drugs, uh, you know, entertainment. And so I think a lot of people, they just don't want to fall to like that kind of bottom space where you can have that existential dark night of the soul, if you will. Um, and, but they oftentimes don't know what's coming on the other side of that. Right. And so I think that that's what I've seen. The people that are wanting things to go back to normal are just essentially like numbing out to their own emotional and somatic space. Like they just, there's been no connection to that. And I, I heard this really great quote by, um, Carolyn May. She said, we either have these, uh, these moments uh, through crises or, or curiosity, uh, so it's either crises or curiosity. And of course, I think most of us want to have these moments um, of awakening and and that through curiosity, right? Because then we have less uh, instability happening in our life. But it's, it just takes a lot of courage, really, to to be on that path. <laughs> so Right on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say, I'd ref first, I think I'd refine that a little bit further. And I, I agree in broad strokes with that statement about curiosity, like, you know, by force or by choice, uh, you can get there. But you, and that curiosity is, in a way, a harder path because you have to kind of um, – you don't have the crisis to prove it to you in your bones. Um, but the curiosity, I think the, the missing statement there is um, that it has to include empathy. Like you can have – you can be a very healthy person with no pain and you know, to some degree for some amount of time. You, you, you can – and curiosity though like you know will pull you towards to look around the corner but will also pull you to look at the lives of others and if you're an empathic person and paying attention you may have you know very little or no pain or hardship in your life for at least a period but if you're really paying attention 
um, through mirror neurons and through our ability to empathy, there's no shortage of pain going on in the world around us. So, and there is a directness. That's not, there's an indirect component, but there's also a direct component. If we are empathic, we are feeling that pain too. It is our pain too. So in a way, the, there's sort of a crisis by like a vicarious crisis um, that I think can be an important piece of how the curiosity can pull you to this in the same direction and not leave your felt, your somatic, your body behind. Because if you're paying attention, you can feel the losses of others as, 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 uh, as acutely as you can feel your own. Mm, yeah. Amen. As a highly empathetic person, <laughs> I can definitely. Yeah. BJ, what sort of things have surprised you the most on this journey? I mean, if you look back on the tenure that you've uh, put mental health together and, you know, everything that happened really in your entire life, you know, what have, what has surprised you the most? What do you want to tell people? Mm. Let's see here. Um, well, I think we've talked a fair amount about like the things I have to say to people about this big subject, in a nutshell, of pulling life uh, towards death and, and, and seeing the relationship between the two, the package deal of the two. And that's all over the place. You know, try, try, to, try to know joy, you know, if you don't know sorrow as a human being. You know, these, these, are, these are, they may be distinct words, but they're not a distinct experience. You know, try, try having a meaningful life with no suffering. Good luck. You know, um, so my, I guess so, so much of any message that I may be trying to relate is just simply that is, is, is building the bridges between what feel like opposing thoughts or feelings and finding a way to learn to live with all of them and even to see their connections between them. You know, that I think much the message I'm playing out and trying to uh, promote in the world and, and practice every day myself. You know, so we've touched on that, but the, um, you know, surprise, I suppose is I keep realizing that everything, you know, that in us, in each of us is everything that we need. You know, that if you just tend to daily life, you don't need to go to Princeton. You don't need to get a medical degree. Mm -hmm. If you just paid attention to daily life. Everything we're talking about is playing out right under our noses all the time, especially if you're tuned into nature. This is not, you know, these are not exotic foreign experiences. They may feel that way in detail, but if you're paying attention to yourself, these are all happening in and around you all the time. Death is in and around us all the time. Death of relationships, death of ideas, uh, loss, death of, of, of identity. You know that those are in little deaths that we have over the course of our lives that are that really do prepare us for the big death on some level. Um, so loss is teaching us things all the time. Go walk in the woods. Try to find yourself like the most bountiful, alive garden. You will find evidence of death all over the place, whether it's fertilizer or a, a yellowed leaf or whatever it is. It's just all over the place. And it's all over inside of us, too. So I guess I'm saying here the surprise is that everything we need to know, as far as I can tell, um, uh, and I don't mean that everything that's knowable, but everything I think that we need to know and can know is actually in and around us always. And to me, that's helpful to say because it's reassuring. There's sort of a confidence that comes from that notion. 
And there's a way to kind of stand up, right, even when society might be telling us to be ashamed because of the color of our skin or because of a number of limbs or uh, where we come from or whatever else. BS, that's made up. That's made up pain. That is not natural pain. Uh, and, and, and so there's relief. I think there's innocence for us all and there's wisdom in us all waiting us if we kind of pay attention. It's not something that happens over there. It's something that happens in here all the time if we look. Mm, wow. So beautiful, BJ. That was incredibly inspiring. And I think it's so obvious that you have done the work of staying connected to yourself and, and becoming connected to yourself. Cause I think that, you know, that's what you're trying to convey to our audience, which is, you know, yeah. there's the external world and then there's the internal world and all of our answers are actually inside. We, we don't have to go out, you know, looking yeah. for them and pushing against, you know, our reality. It, it's so, it's really just a powerful message. And I, I hope that people really take it, take it to heart. So Thank you. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I hope people did. I hope I take it to heart. I'm I'm really learning that one too. You know, it sort of gets at how how incredibly difficult I find it to. I can love you much faster than I can love myself. I don't know why the hell that is, mm. but part of a follow on to the statement I was just making there is that in, also including in you towards yourself, it should be love. I don't know why we withhold that from ourselves. Um, I don't know if you do that, but I do that. And a lot of people I know do do that. So yeah. it's a work in progress. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, uh, culture also dictates that if you love yourself, you know, that you are selfish. And so I think that that kind of, you know, attitude is something that I've been, have been, kind of spent my whole life working on the idea of self-love and nourishing myself first before, uh, helping others and loving others, right? Because how do we love others unless we love ourselves? I mean, I think then it leads to so much insecurity. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, BJ, it's been such a pleasure. I love the way that you articulate yourself and your thoughtfulness. And I'm just so grateful that we've had this time together. And where can people find you? Where are some resources that you can point folks to? Ah, uh, thanks, Yasmin. It, it's really a pleasure talking with you. That went super fast. Um, yeah, so um, some come find us, see us at Metal Health, M E T T L E, uh, metalhealth.com. We're trying to, we're small and we're just getting started and we got a long way to go. So, but we do try to get a little bit more active on social media. So, there's we have an Instagram and Twitter account by the name Metal Health. Um, or you can find me on Twitter at BJ Miller MD. Um, not that the MD is important. It's just that at BJ Miller was taken. So <laughs> at BJ Miller MD, um, you know, so those are some places you can find us. And also we got a little, I'm just starting to spit without too much mind towards production quality. I'm just spitting a lot of little videos out in the world. So there's just helpful stuff around caregiving and being a patient, et cetera. You can find those, some videos on TikTok. Although, um, I, don't know, I don't know how to find them, but my friend Faye helps put them out there. So TikTok or YouTube, you can find me and us uh, from Mental Health too. Amazing. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. And we'll include all those links in the show notes. So, Oh, I should also mention the book. Thanks to you. You were so kind to do so. We do have a beginner's guide to the end. Simon and Schuster published that. You can find that at any old bookstore, Amazon, of course. Um, 
And we do have a website, a basic website for that book. And that's just the acronym, a beginner's guide to the end, abgtte.com. So sorry. Thank you. I wanted to get that in there too. Yes. Yes. A very important book that I think everyone should read and will definitely promote mental health. I think the work you're doing is incredible. So thank you so much. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the end of life and how to prepare for death gracefully with BJ Miller. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.